Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. The threat from climate change is bigger than ever. Experts say the ability of trees to capture carbon and cool neighborhoods could make a difference in saving lives. But in Connecticut cities, unequal access to trees means their benefits are only enjoyed by some. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we listen back to a conversation from earlier this year. Later, we'll hear how New Haven is regrowing its tree population, and we'll speak with a Harvard professor on how climate change is affecting our region's forest and what we can do to prevent deforestation. But first, a 2021 study from the Nature Conservancy ranked tree coverage in America's wealthiest and poorest urban areas. Connecticut cities like Hartford and New Haven rank among the top 10 for largest disparities in coverage between neighborhoods. Drew Goldsman is the Urban Conservation Director for the Nature Conservancy in Connecticut. He's here to break down why the state fares so poorly. I asked him to explain why cities even need trees. The health and well-being benefits, I think, are the kind of the first and foremost easiest to think about. So heat island effect, the the concentration of heat um, in cities and, and urbanized communities um, is is pretty dramatic. And trees have been really proven to be a, a, an incredible tool to, um, to to cool down our communities. When I'm doing outreach um, in, in Bridgeport and beyond and I'm talking to folks about their relationship to trees and if they're interested in having trees planted, um, the, the, the two... The, the, the top two reasons that folks are always interested, and they're not always interested, but often the reason why people do connect with trees are uh, for the cooling effects and shade for their kids to play um, and the beauty and the aesthetics. Those are really the top two. So people really get that, that cooling impact. You know, there, there's been, it's been shown that across the country that uh, wealthier neighborhoods have 65% more tree canopy um, than the poorest neighborhoods in their, in, in their regions. Um, and it's been proven here in Connecticut we are uh, unfortunately ranked at the, the top of that discrepancy and that inequity across neighborhoods and communities. Well, I think it's fascinating for our listeners to think about that these disparities that we see in housing and residential segregation across Connecticut has this sort of broader impact on the quality of life, not just where people live, but how they can live. And one of the things that we know from recent research is that having trees in particular areas can actually reduce crime and violence, that it encourages people to adopt healthier lifestyles but also has something to do with mental well-being. Talk to us a little about that and what you're seeing in that kind of connection to where people are. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible the number of studies that are coming out that show the relationship between health and well-being. Uh, you know, there's a study that shows that um, students with um, uh, with trees outside of their classroom window perform better, all other things being held equal. Um, hospital rooms and recovery rooms with trees outside um, kind of within view of the window, uh, recovery times increase, uh, all else being held equal. Um, and we know deeply that the connection with the, the natural world is something that um, 
kind of has been fragmented in a lot of our modern lifestyles, but something that we're really keen on at the Nature Conservancy, and I think a lot of the community-based uh, urban forestry programs around the country and here in Connecticut, is to better understand the existing relationships with folks in natural resources. I think it's easy to, to jump to, oh, people in cities don't have those relationships, but I think often they look a lot different than a traditional environmental um, kind of context. And so I think it's also just about really lifting up that relationship and supporting it and understanding where frontline communities have been really underserved by trees and other nature-based solutions or natural, natural assets, um, but also kind of deeply understanding that connection and that there are a lot of reasons in which people, because of um, kind of systemic problems, have been led to see trees as a liability, as a threat and a risk. Um, and that's understandable when you have maybe an underfunded uh, public works department that can't get out there and sweep up the leaves as often as possible or whatever it might be. And so that leads communities or sidewalk heaves. That's one of the biggest issues we find in, in Connecticut. A lot of residents or property owners are responsible for maintaining their sidewalks. And so therefore, they're, they're, not, they're less willing to, to maintain a tree in front of their home. Um, and so those health and well-being benefits, air quality, mental health, um, those are really kind of the suite of benefits that we always kind of look to. And we try to make sure that we're connecting with folks on kind of where, where it resonates with them. And so, um, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of the heat, the heat piece is really the number one, but it's that, that suite of benefits, including the mental health that is just so critical. Let's talk about some of those relationships and some of those connections, because often we find in Connecticut cities that you have a higher population of people who are renting where they live. And perhaps that kind of investment is different in terms of the amount of time they want to put into a space that may not be theirs or having a landlord who may not invest in the quality of life of their residents. And one of the statistics that really stood out to me, Drew, is uh, from the city of Bridgeport. And it's been rated as one of the cities that has less tree coverage than other parts of the state, particularly the affluent areas that neighbor Bridgeport. What does the tree canopy look like across Connecticut, and in particular for cities like Bridgeport and others that you work with? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think Bridgeport is just such a kind of profound um, example of these discrepancies because nested right there in Fairfield County, uh, it is it is adjacent to some of the the kind of the best resource communities in the country and the wealthiest communities in the country. So the the contrast is really really stark. And so you know we've done a lot of work in neighborhoods like the. Uh, the east side and east end in particular and the west end, um, which are neighborhoods that have between, you know, 7 and 12 percent tree canopy cover. Um, Bridgeport overall is is roughly 20 percent or so with some of its wealthier, wider neighborhoods at, you know, 40 to 45 percent. So it's pretty clear, um, you know, and that that uh, has a lot to do with kind of the legacy of industry in the in the city and the concentration of poverty and um, and the kind of legacy of, of particular housing policies that have led to kind of certain um, concentrations of uh, frontline communities and communities of color in uh, kind of formerly industrial high density areas, which is great. We're a big fan of density, but how do we ensure that those communities can be healthy? There's a, there's a movement within kind of the urban forestry space that is, is I think, rightfully really seeking to support community stewardship of, of trees and natural assets and communities. And I think that's really vital and back to that kind of connection that that individuals and communities have with their natural resources, how can we lift up those stories and honor that relationship? And I think that's that's great. And that's really critical to be kind of uh, um, supporting community leaders and making those decisions. 
That said, I do think that there's a shortcoming when we we put all of this emphasis on community stewardship. Um, I think we often then disregard a lot of um, the other barriers that exist in people's lives that would that would facilitate them doing that. You know, it it's unfair in a lot of ways and reinforces a lot of inequities by kind of essentially building these systems around that level of community and kind of residential stewardship. And I think that's why we really have to make sure that we're that we're investing in these, you know, be it uh, a city run program or, a, you know, an NGO nonprofit partnership program that is doing a lot of that work. It's, it's, it's not right to essentially be putting that on the resident. And, and we, and we see that, you know, residents, you know, who are, are, are renters who are working a couple jobs and, and maybe have to bounce around a little bit. They just have um, fewer opportunities to get out there and, and be the one stewarding those street trees and so on. So I think that that's, that's a critical piece of it and something that I think is a little bit of a gap in the way that some of the kind of current programs are, are, are seeking to, again, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You want to be supporting that community stewardship. I'm just curious why a city like Bridgeport seems to have such low tree coverage and then what the implications are across the state. I mean, I think it, it comes down to segregation. Um, you know, Connecticut is essentially the most segregated state in the country by some measures, right? And and it's it's no surprise then that um, that our landscape and our our natural resources are going to be kind of equally as segregated. A lot of that can come back. I know you've covered in the past redlining. If you can just map that onto any city, and the and um, urban forest cover kind of corresponds with the redlining. Everything that I'm hearing and what you've just shared reflects the broader challenges in our country, that often we take problems that are the product of systemic institutional choices, and we put the onus of solving those problems onto individuals, whether that's individual households or individual communities, and it never addresses the real possibility of moving forward. And one of the ways why I think that your work is so important here is that we're also in a state where we're seeing this housing crisis, so to speak, where some people cannot afford to live in particular areas and others are just flooding the market with cash and changing the dynamic and the makeup. So when we think about what we do moving forward, this need for housing in Connecticut as well as this need for green space, for all of the benefits that you mentioned, what would you say needs to be done to be able to still prioritize and support those green spaces and trees while also addressing the broader problems that you've mentioned? It's there, there it is. That's the, 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 the crux of it all. Um, I mean, I think in short, we need to invest in our cities. We have to really understand who, I mean, in, in a very narrow sense related to urban forestry, we really need to understand kind of where are the communities and the neighborhoods at the neighborhood scale that are in the most dire need. You know, we're talking about communities, again, like north end of Hartford, south end, east side, east end of Bridgeport that have seven to 10% canopy cover compared to goals um, and standards across the state of, you know, 30 to 40%. Um, so I think that's kind of the the simplest answer related to urban forestry is just deeply invest in those communities and let's not maybe spread out those those funds as as broadly. Um, but I think fundamentally it really does come down to um, uh, you know addressing segregation and 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 we're we're also keenly aware of kind of the you know green displacement, green gentrification, and it's something that I think the the community around urban forestry is is pretty cognizant of and really trying to figure out kind of where, how, how to do that work well. And I think 
to use maybe a term of the day, you know, it's thinking kind of intersectionally about these issues. And so we've been working a lot with um, affordable housing providers is kind of one way that we see an opportunity here. Um, that said, you know, in Bridgeport, for example, much of the housing stock is kind of naturally, let's call it affordable, right? It's, it's market rate and affordable, and that's key. And so um, that's not subsidized housing, that's not public housing. Um, and it's really important to maintain the affordability of those, um, of those communities. But I think it is about making sure that we're, we're kind of in, we're, we're finding those partnerships with uh, be it our affordable housing partners, be it just in general city government to ensure that this is considered a vital city service, um, along with transit, along with housing, along with lead abatement. Um, you know, this all has to be part of kind of a comprehensive investment in community health and well-being. We're now one year since the storm last year, Isais, and as someone who lost a number of trees due to these storms and the fear and concern about the the majesty, but also the the magnitude of damage that that could happen. I've also been thinking about how utility companies have now stepped up their efforts to um, also think about tree removal. So when you think about the importance of trees, when you think about the importance of protecting tree canopies in Connecticut, how important is it to also focus on maintenance and preservation and not just planting, which seems to dominate much of the conversation? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I don't have it off the top of my hand, but, you know, a, a mature tree sequesters, you know, a, a hundred times more carbon creates, you know, you know, magnitudes of order more cooling in communities than a newly planted, you know, sapling or two inch caliper tree. So absolutely, we need to maintain focus on the maintenance of our existing canopy. Those are the ones that are really doing the work right now. That said, a lot of them were planted 50, 70, 100 years ago, you know, often actually at a time when there were no overhead power lines. And so now we're dealing kind of with this, this, kind of, this conflict of these trees that were planted that were not maintained, unfortunately, and now we're leading that is leading to a lot of um, utility impact. You know, you make a cut when a tree is five years old it leads to a healthy tree. But if you try and make that same cut, essentially when it's 75 years old, you'll end up effectively killing it um, or just leading to kind of honestly more risk and it'll essentially need to come down. So I think the the kind of urban forestry community is, is trying to work with our kind of utility partners and try to educate them on, on their pruning practices now in this kind of snapshot of a moment when we're dealing with the, these mature trees. Um, but then also thinking about kind of succession plantings and really trying to start building up that new canopy. I, th I think it speaks to the need to understand and address the complexity of trees and the role that they play. Drew Goldsman is the Urban Conservation Director for the Nature Conservancy in Connecticut. Drew, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. After the break, the program manager for New Haven's biggest tree planning organization talks about why it's important for communities to be involved in these efforts. And later, a conversation about New England's rural forests and how we're losing thousands of acres of trees each year. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 
Coming up, a Harvard professor talks about the future of New England's forests and how we can play a role in protecting them. But now we continue our look at Connecticut's urban trees and forests. Last year, New Haven Mayor Justin Elliker announced the creation of a new citywide climate task force. He hopes to end greenhouse gas emissions in New Haven by 2030 and to reduce the amount of carbon already in the atmosphere. To meet this goal, the city will need to deeply invest in its urban tree canopy. But in 2016, nearly half of the city's neighborhoods reported tree coverage under 20 percent. Since 1991, the nonprofit Urban Resources Initiative has been working with city officials to regrow the tree canopy. By some estimates, the group's efforts now account for over a fifth of all of New Haven's trees. Caro Scanlon is the Green Skills Manager for URI. Caro, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this year is one of tremendous celebration. It marks the 30th anniversary of the Urban Resources Initiative. And over that time, URI has done really important work in New Haven. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the organization, talk to us about the mission of URI and how that last 30 years has shaped what you do. Sure. URI is a urban forestry nonprofit that's based at the Yale School of the Environment. And our mission for the past 30 years has been to promote community-based land stewardship and also environmental education and green jobs training um, through our internships and planting program um, here in New Haven. And also to advance the practice of urban forestry more generally. No, it's a, it's a really unique partnership to have this organization working with the Yale School, but also working very deeply with community and thinking about green space projects across New Haven neighborhoods. What would you say has changed about the mission of the organization in its inception in 1991 and how you carry it out today? For the first 15, nearly 20 years, URI worked primarily with volunteers, um, incredibly dedicated volunteers, many of which are still working on green space projects today to plant street trees, to steward urban parks or create new pocket parks in their neighborhood. And that was really the cornerstone of, you know, much of our early work and our work today. But about 10 years ago, we um, realized you know what, there are folks that were not reaching young people, high school aged youth, many young adults. And we would like to expand our program to include not just working with volunteers, but providing paid work, um, employment opportunities. And so that's when we started our green skills program to really not only ramp up the tree planting um, that was happening in the city, um, but also expand our mission of um, providing work for folks with barriers to employment um, and just to expand the number of people who are participating in the practice of urban forestry and even more generally. So let's talk a little about that green skills program that you manage. One of the things that I've always been interested in is 
how for some people this is seen as a luxury that, you know, having this concern about the environment, about trees, about the role they play in community is a luxury. And the work you do with, with green skills is really centering the importance of trees, of respecting the land and the connection that people and communities have with the land. And part of that is this tree planning project and process that many people know the program for. Walk us through that process. So, so how does it happen that your organization or your group is planting trees in New Haven and that the community is part of that? Well, first of all, we have an incredible partner with the city of New Haven, who is our biggest funder um, of our work. So we have a contract with the city to plant about 550 trees every year. Um, And we do that with a request-based model. So every tree that's planted by our team has been requested by a New Haven resident, both owners and renters, in fact, mostly renters are the ones who are adopting street trees in our city, um, or other community institutions like businesses and churches and libraries. And so when we get a request to plant a tree, we work with that tree requester, we call them, um, to choose a species that they love and that's going to work well for the site to make sure that the location, you know, is where they want it to be and the tree is going to thrive in the long term. And then when we plant the tree for them, we also follow up with all kinds of information about how to care for the tree, um, how to respond to difficulties, you know, that they may have with the tree going forward and to make sure that it's a real partnership, you know, from beginning to hopefully, um, you know, the end of the tree's life as well. Um, And so the, the residents, the tree adopters, as we call them, are real partners in the process of, you know, choosing to have the tree planted, choosing the tree species that's planted, and then caring for the tree with our support in the long run. So last year, my family and I adopted a tree through this program. That's amazing. It was so exciting to go through the process, to learn about the different species of trees, to think about what would work with our neighborhood, but to also see this team come out. And it's really a team that comes out that works with the homeowner or the renter, but I have to tell you, Carol, one of the most exciting parts was that we got a certificate saying that we had adopted this tree and we framed it and it's in our entryway because it's this realization that this tree was planted today, but it is really a gift to the home and to the families that will inhabit that space for as long as we invest in it and cultivate it. So it's an exciting process to be part of. Something that you mentioned at the beginning, I think is really important for our listeners, is that you work with homeowners as well as renters. And in a city like New Haven, where you have such a high rental population and you often have landlords who may not be present, it's important for that community engagement that home ownership does not become a barrier to people being able to do this. Talk to us about that decision to incorporate both renters and owners. Well, first of all, we believe that it's so important for all residents of the city to be, um, you know, engaged in the process of taking care of their neighborhoods and the environment that they live in and, and depend on to have, you know, healthy and thriving lives. And 
most of the trees that we plant are actually planted in the public right-of-way. So that little strip between the sidewalk and the curb is actually owned by the city. And even though, you know, many of the residents who live on the other side of the sidewalk do a lot to care for that strip, it is public property. So we do have um, permission um, from the city to be planting in that space. And so we're excited to be able to offer this opportunity for people to adopt a tree, um, no matter their status as a renter or owner. Um, and like I said, most of the people who adopt trees are renters and they, you know, will sometimes if they don't have a water source on the outside of their building, they'll carry buckets of water from inside, from their bathtub or their sink. And people are committed and they love their trees and we're so grateful to them. We couldn't plant these trees and grow the forest without them. It's an amazing example of what happens when opportunities are created for people and created for people who too often get overlooked in our cities, but really in our day-to-day lives. And another way that your program is doing that is through your partnerships with young people and the formerly incarcerated so that they are having this opportunity to be connected to the land but also this opportunity to connect with community. Why the decision by URI and your program in particular to partner with these groups? Yeah, so when we first started working with our um, Green Skills Program, uh, we first started working with high school teams. We partnered with two amazing high schools in New Haven, um, Common Ground High School and Sound School. And We have loved working with our high school teams, and we've done that for over 10 years. Our partnership with Emerge Connecticut, which is a local reentry support organization, job skills training program, we've been working with them for 10 years also. But when we first started working with our adult teams, we worked with a few different partner organizations, but we found working with Emerge to be so positive and the team was so consistent and we really benefited from the partnership and we were one of their first major contracts as well. And so really we've grown together um, over the years and made our you know mutual success possible. You know, my partner in running the program here at URI, William Tisdale, he is a graduate and now board member of Emerge Connecticut. And so he now supervises Um, our our adult team, you know, it's important for us to show that we we value the contributions that these folks make and we want to provide um, employment and opportunities for, you know, these adults to get out into the community and do work that's really public and positive. Um, And uh, we, we love working with Emerge and we couldn't do what we do without them. Um, and it's really been an opportunity for URI to to reach so many folks in New Haven to grow our own community and network and to have voices and advocates, you know, for local urban forestry efforts, um, but just environmental stewardship in general in the city. And so we've all grown together through this partnership. And I can't say enough about it. What do you see from the partners from Emerge, from the employees who work on these projects? What do they tell you about their experience in working in tree planting, but more broadly than just tree planting, but being a part of this collective? Yeah, well, I wish that, you know, some of my teammates would be here to say things in their own words. But one thing that I often hear over and over again is 
you know, what does tree planting mean to them? It means planting new life in, in neighborhoods where maybe they've grown up um, and are, are eager to have a different kind of impact. You know, I don't want to underestimate the power of like, you know, my teammates being out there and maybe they've grown up um, in this neighborhood, you know, their whole life. And now they're getting to meet friends, you know, folks that they've known planting a tree, they get to bring their families by the tree, their children, their partners, and to say, hey, I did that. That tree's going to be there for generations. Um, and this is my this is my mark on my neighborhood. I have chills, you know, just talking about it, but this is something that I hear from my teammates that emerge all the time. You mentioned in, in talking about the work of URI that your organization plants about 500 trees per year, which is amazing. But at the same time, New Haven, like many other places, has struggled with tree growth, even with these committed efforts, even with these important partnerships, growing the tree population over the last decade is a challenge. What's causing that challenge? And what can organizations like URI do to really reverse some of that trend? Sure. So um, as you alluded to, you know, we, we plant over 500 trees a year, you know, roughly about 525 on average. Um, but the city actually removes about that number of trees every year as well um, because of storm damage, because trees are aging out, because many of these trees were planted during, you know, quote unquote, urban renewal efforts, you know, roughly 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, and also there are, you know, increased pest pressures, which are only going to get worse in, you know, a changing climate. So in the past 10 years, um, we have a pest called the emerald ash borer, this tiny little beetle that is attacking ash trees. And ash trees were planted prolifically across New Haven, and they're beautiful street trees, but they stand no chance against um, against this insect. And so we are going to lose all of our ash trees and we already have lost most of them. So that might leave entire blocks totally um, devoid of trees and shade, including the block that I live on, which had many ash trees and is now getting replanted. And um, uh, my colleague, Anna, who also lives on the block, she said, you know, it's very hopeful to see these young trees growing in, um, but it makes a big difference to have, you know, a healthy canopy suddenly lost. Um, and so it's really important that we get ahead of the game and we, you know, we're planning for the future and planting trees now uh, to, you know, to take over the space of trees that we're going to be losing um, over the years. And, and yes, I do believe that the efforts that we're making now are important and meaningful, but also all of our cities are going to have to increase our tree planting programs because it's really a matter of life or death. Um, you know, extreme heat kills more people every year. You know, it's the, it's the most deadly natural disaster. Um, and, and we know that having a shaded neighborhood makes a big impact in terms of whether someone can weather an extreme heat event or not. So planting, planting trees is not just for a beautiful neighborhood, but also for, for a healthy neighborhood and, and, keeping, and keeping folks healthy and alive. It was a big concern I had last year during the height of the pandemic, where many public spaces that previously would serve as cooling centers, places like libraries and churches, when they were closed, 
we often worried about where do people go, particularly people living in neighborhoods that do not have much of a tree canopy or lack adequate tree cover. And so your point about seeing that, yes, there's beauty in the trees, but there's also health and wellness that connects all of us, regardless of where we live, is so key. What's the reaction that you receive when you talk to communities and leaders and residents about the importance of respecting trees, but also committing to trees? Yeah, well, many of the folks that we talk to, they already have those values instilled in them. There's not much convincing that needs to be done. Most folks are excited to have a tree planted if the opportunity is presented to them. You know, we do have folks that are, um, you know, that are not as excited to have trees planted and we respect those, those opinions as well. But many folks say, well, you know, some of the trees on my block are not as well cared for as I would like, like they're dead branches or, you know, I was nervous in the storm, a tree came down and I don't want to risk having another tree Um, maybe hit my car or my house. And so, you know, what that makes me think of is it's really important to be investing in the care of our mature trees in our neighborhoods as well. Planting programs are really important. I work for one, you know, I believe in the importance of planting new trees, but also we need to take care of what we've got. I feel like that's a lesson for life that we need to invest in and and care for what we have and not just always be looking for replacement and the next thing. URI has done phenomenal work in the New Haven community and it connects to other communities and neighborhoods because this is really a small state and what's happening in one area often can have an impact on another. What do you say to other towns about the need to partner to really make this kind of investment? Sure. Well, we have a lot of residents and neighboring towns who often ask us, can you come and plant a tree in West Haven or in Hamden or in East Haven? And, you know, unfortunately, we have to say, well, this is a New Haven based program. But we definitely recommend reaching out to whoever is in charge of street tree planting and care in your community, whether that's public works um, or the parks department, or maybe you have a tree commission and really advocate for increasing funds for tree planting and tree care, but also finding those those partners in your community who you could develop some sort of public-private partnership where you can have an employment program, a green jobs planting program, whether that's with a local school um, or, or a nonprofit like Emerge. So um, we've definitely, you know, we welcome folks coming and, and learning from the model that we have here in New Haven, but, um, you know, we're also excited to hear about other projects in other cities as well. Carol Scanlon is the Green Skills Manager for Urban Resources Initiative. To learn more about the group's efforts in New Haven and to request a tree for your own neighborhood, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. When we return, we zoom out to look at the region and learn more about the role we play in protecting New England's rural forests. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. 
I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Each year, New England's forests are a vital force for the region's tourism industry. They're also important for improving air quality and lowering the risk of respiratory diseases like asthma. But our rural forests are shrinking. About 38 square miles of forest land is being cut down annually. What's causing this dramatic deforestation? David R. Foster is senior conservationist at Harvard University's Harvard Forest. It's a 4,000-acre lab and classroom for ecology and conservation. He's also chairman of the Highstead Foundation. David, welcome to Disrupted. Very glad to be here. Thanks. You know, there is no question that the forests of New England are some of the most beautiful and stunning in the country, but we've also gone through these periods of both growth and destruction. Talk to our listeners about what our forests looked like 100 years ago and how they've changed. Yeah, that's a great question because the Transformation of the New England landscape has really been fantastic over the last 100 to 150 years. Um, You know, at the time of European settlement, um, with a thriving population of native people who actually lived very much off of the land. But starting in the 1600s, there was a very uh, progressive deforestation of the landscape and conversion of forest areas to agricultural areas. And that peaked in the 1850s into the late 19th century. Um, And then as agriculture shifted to other parts of the country, and as agriculture in New England became more concentrated, a lot of land was abandoned. And so 100 years ago, the forests of New England were fewer, they were smaller, and the trees were much younger than they are today. And as a consequence, we've seen over that last century, just a tremendous growth and flourishing of nature. And I think that may be surprising to some people to hear that we've experienced growth and this flourishing, because that seems to be the opposite of what's happening in other parts of the country. And one of the things that we're hearing about so much nationally right now are the wildfires and the droughts that are ravaging the western part of the United States. But we've also dealt with some of those same types of threats here in New England, What is the impact of climate change for New England and in particular on our tree population? Yeah, it is very important to draw a distinction between the Northeast, New England, even the Eastern US and other parts of the country. And yet the story, this story of incredible resilience and regrowth of New England's forests is actually a great lesson that can be applied to many other parts of the world. But our forests are incredibly resilient, and we happen to live in a region where there is abundant precipitation, and so relatively little danger of wildfire. The forest, the natural cover of the landscape is forest, and they grow extremely well. And they come back from the whole range of natural disturbances that one can imagine. Hurricanes are are kind of most majestic and powerful natural disturbance, but we have other wind storms, we have uh, ice storms, we have native insect and now 
non-native insect outbreaks, all of which damage the forest, but the forest show a tremendous capacity to regrow. We don't always hear about the ways that climate change affects our region differently, but at the same time, we're losing 24,000 acres of forest land every year. If it's not from climate change, what's leading to this significant tree loss? Yeah, so there are three really interacting factors. There is deforestation, the clearing of forests and converting of that those areas to these days, it's not farmland so much as converting it to house lots and roads and commercial structures and solar arrays and power lines and things like that. You have active management of the forest, forestry and logging of timber, which we need for natural resources. And then you have natural disturbances and climate change that are taking place. When studies look at those three interacting, um, it turns out that the least damaging, uh, the least consequential to our forests, surprisingly, is climate change. Um, In general, in New England, um, as the temperatures warm, our seasons will get longer um, with more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, Ironically, our trees grow better. So with a longer growing season, plenty of precipitation and lots of carbon dioxide, our forests are anticipated to actually increase in productivity. But we actually are converting 24, 25,000 acres of land a year across New England to asphalt and to backyards. Um, that's the single most intensive and most damaging impact because it eliminates the forest, it releases carbon dioxide, and it prevents future forests from taking that in and providing all the other benefits. Actually, harvesting is the biggest impact across the entire region because it is so widespread. But of course, it leaves forests to regrow. And so we can modify that behavior so that it actually can provide us with resources without uh, as much damage as it does these days. And so my focus is very much on deforestation and reducing the extent to which we are losing our forests. David, what are some of the things that we can do as individuals to make sure that we're respecting the land and not contributing to these challenges? One of the really important things to recognize in New England is that there is a role for every individual in this issue. Um, If you happen to own land, if you have a backyard even, if you have five acres of land, if you happen to be fortunate enough to own more land, you can take good care of it first by leaving it alone and doing no harm. And secondly, if you manage it, to manage it very carefully. You can look to conserve that land to permanently protect it from development. And that's one of the most important steps that any landowner can take by reaching out to land trusts and other conservation organizations. But we all need to recognize that the US is extraordinary in 
the callous nature that we take towards forests. And here we are in New England, blessed with this historically important forest that is doing so much for us in terms of abating climate change and providing a huge economic um, promotion of the region through tourism and products and everything else. And yet we just do not look after it. We treat it poorly and we deforest. So we can all become involved in a really important political process of scrutinizing every single time that we go to clear forest land or we go to clear farmland. And then finally, Americans simply consume too many resources. We consume too much energy. We make too many things that are built to be thrown away. We fill our houses and our attics and our garages with material that we don't need. And every single one of those resources comes from the earth, which ultimately, in most cases, damages nature. So we need to think much more carefully about how we live our individual lives. You know, David, I think about this last 16 months where so many of us have restricted our travel, restricted our movement because of the pandemic and have really retreated to nature wherever we can find that space to feel like we are making healthy choices, but to also connect to something that is bigger than just who we are as individuals. And I think your point about the power of urban areas to say, this is why we need to protect land, why we need to respect the environment and respect the forest because it has all of these health benefits of our physical health, our social and emotional health, but also this connection as well. And as we think about looking forward and, and what needs to happen in order to continue that and increase awareness, I want to draw our listeners to a 2017 report that you produced along with Wildlands and Woodlands. And it made some really detailed suggestions for what we need to do. Here's the big number that stood out to me as I was reading this. The report says we need to conserve 30 million acres or about 70% of our forested land by 2060. As you think about the time since that report was released in 2017, what kind of progress has this region made toward reaching that goal? We've made great progress. And we need to redouble that effort and make even more. But that report points out that New England has already conserved more than a quarter of its forests. That in the two decades before that report, that the rate of land conservation was three to four times what it had been over the previous history. And so we have tremendous momentum. That report really recognizes that there are organizations and individuals at every scale of New England, from, from individual landowners, municipalities, states, and the entire region that are working towards this goal and have the power to actually do it. So while in a sense, we are asking for a real shift in behavior and attitude. We have a lot to build on and a lot to be thankful for and great optimism that if we care about these issues, we can actually accomplish those kinds of goals. 
I'm glad to hear the optimism. I'm glad to hear the encouragement because often we get so overwhelmed by the negative trends that lifting up those possibilities becomes important. And I want to also balance that with what are the ongoing concerns that you have that even as we've made this progress, we are raising public awareness and education, which I think are so key. What is the thing that continues to concern you as we move forward? Lack of recognition and lack of action. Um, that report actually makes the recommendations that every town and every state establish goals for itself. And that has happened at a very slow rate over the last few years. It also makes this point about the 24,000 acres and there has been very little movement at a state level and at municipal levels to actually scrutinize closely what we are doing with our land. Um, and there is the larger fear and concern that climate change is just exacerbating all of these processes that can damage forests, that can impact our lives. And so, while it raises the attention of a lot of people, what it needs to do is galvanize action. And the biggest fear is that action is going to be slow and too late. David R. Foster is senior conservationist at Harvard University's Harvard Forest, and he's chairman of the Highstead Foundation. This week's episode was produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, Katie Tolarski, and Vanessa De La Torre. Our interns are B. Levine and Dylan Reyes. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>